Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. Obviously, a lot of people who get interested in investing, particularly in developed countries, they very much have a home bias. And when you mention to them the idea, well, these days, look, there's a big world out there. You can invest overseas. These days, there are index funds if you really don't want to do the work, but you can get access to all of these markets around the world. But then people sort of, they they intuitively think there must be something wrong with this idea. Now, you mentioned high interest rates and inflation and what that might mean for investors. And it's so hard for us to remember in a country like Australia, we're um, debating whether the cash rate should go basically from zero to 1%. So when you hear about a country where the yield on a a high quality company might be 12% or 13% for a bank or something, people, they think there must be something wrong with this approach. Uh, The the one question that people always ask me is what happens with foreign exchange and currency? So do you have an issue with foreign exchange? How do you deal with that? And the other question is usually around liquidity. So Presumably, there must be days on the market where there's not much trading or no trading at all. So I guess those are the two questions people ask me. So I'll flick it over to an expert who can actually answer those questions properly for us. Those are the the, the three biggies, sovereign risk, which we already dealt with to an extent. And then, yes, currency risk. The third one is inflation. And, you know, so the way I look at it, yes. The, the currencies uh, in these frontier markets will over time depreciate against, you know, hard currencies, although, I mean, is any currency really hard now? I mean, it's, it's arguably not the case, right? So the way I think about it, I, I do run filters, obviously, uh, to try and avoid ending up in places that, that go full on hyperinflation like Zimbabwe did. Zambia went very close. Um, issue investing in, in places like that. And at the moment, Nigeria is giving us headaches because the currency there has a, a parallel uh, rate where, you know, it's, it's essentially trading 30% lower on the, the grey market versus the official rate. So, we try and avoid places that could be problematic in the in the short term uh, or are undergoing currency crises. Now that, that's obvious. But for the other countries, the way I think about it is that you kind of have to factor in a three or four percent depreciation per year over time. So if I'm looking to compound my investors' money at about 14, 15%, which is what I say. I'm looking for companies that can double in size in five to 10 years and which are also trading on valuations that are low enough that those valuation multiples can double in five or 10 years. So if I get it right, I'm looking at four times my money in five to 10 years. Now, I won't get them all right, but aiming that high, and it's realistic, 
means that we probably do quite well over the long term as long as I don't make any stupid mistakes. So if you're getting that in nominal terms and the exchange rates are, you know, historically likely to depreciate by three, four percentage points a year, you're still compounding your money quite nicely at 11, 12 percent in in real terms. So that's kind of how I view the, the currency risks. Now, occasionally, you know, there'll be one that goes completely pear shaped and it might, you know, lose half its value. But as long as we have a sensibly diversified portfolio across these frontier African markets, uh, I think we can avoid those complete blow-ups uh, with a bit of luck. And, and there's lots of differences, you know, in the uh, inflation rate. So here in Tanzania, for example, inflation is only about 3.5%. Uh, so it's actually lower than in the West at the moment, if you can believe it. And the currency here has actually strengthened since I've been here. Um, is, it, is it pretty stable, Tim? Tanzania is... is a very stable country in an African context, yeah. And it, it's kind of, it's almost a bit like Japan in that, you know, they need a consensus before they'll do anything. So it's very right. it's very slow moving, the consensus culture, big decisions are not taken uh, without consensus. But it, it's an unusual case, you know. Most countries are more, a, a little bit more volatile. And uh, So we look at Kenya, um, you know, there there's quite strong regional factional differences in the politics and tribal differences and so on. Thankfully, it hasn't turned violent, uh, you know, in the in the post-independence era. But, yeah, there's an undercurrent of that. The Kenyan shilling has been one of the better-performing African countries, uh, currencies rather, over the long term. They let it devalue by about 10% last year during COVID, which, you know, kind of made sense. So their, their currency management system basically... Uh, tends to be that they keep a lid on it and, and manage it and then they'll let it move up 10%, you know, every, every few years uh, yeah. so that on average, as I say, you're getting this sort of 3% per year. That's a pretty good idea, isn't it, when you think about it? Yeah. Um, if, if the central banks, um, you know, have the, uh, the firepower and the skills to do that, it does make some sense. But... You know, every country is different. That's the thing. Africa is so diverse and, you know, countries export different things, so they're on slightly different uh, cycles. Some currencies uh, at the moment have a, a strengthening trend because of that. You know, Ugandan shilling is also uh, strengthening. They export lots of coffee and coffee prices have gone uh, yeah. through the roof. Zambia is, is coming back in favour. Uh, Zambia is pretty much a a warrant on copper prices uh, for, for most investment purposes. And uh, copper is now doing well again. Incidentally, I saw there was an accident in one of the Codelco mines, so maybe copper is going to you know, have an even further supply shock. <laughs> but the Zambian kwacha, as it's called, had been uh, one of the worst performing currencies in recent years because they borrowed way too much money from the Chinese and they actually defaulted right. on, a, on a sovereign bond last year. Right. Uh, but then there was a change of administration. Uh, they have a new president who's one of the rare uh, politicians who was actually a successful businessman before he got into to politics. So he knows something about you know running a, an economy and a company, people seem to think. So the currency there has uh, enjoyed uh, a recent tailwind because of that and also because of the copper price uh, recovery. So these, these are the things that I, I look at when I'm trying to you know, avoid 
the pitfalls of getting into the wrong currencies. But it's a very valid point that, that people raise. You know, if you're an Australian or, or UK or Europe, US-based investor, you do have to take that into account for, for your long-term investing. I mean, I've got, uh, uh, I think, nearly 100 investors now in my fund uh, from all over the place, um, you know, US, Australia, Germany, UK, Switzerland, Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand. You know, they're, they're all over. Uh, and they obviously have different uh, home currencies and, and different needs, but it's all US dollar based simply because that's the, the path of least resistance. Um, but as I say, if we're looking to make 15% a year in US dollar terms, we need to make you know 19%, 20% a year in, in local currency terms, yeah. which is possible. So, Tim, um, well, I don't know if you uh, spend any time on chat forums. You're, you're lucky if you don't. But one of the things that mm-hmm. I've noticed over the past two or three years is that there's a view uh, now that you should be 100% invested in stocks at all times. Uh, you should only buy index funds because nobody can pick companies. It doesn't matter what price you pay because, well, in the long term, the price will probably be higher. I mean, th- that has become – it's gone from being a – a fairly common view to almost universal in uh, some chat forums, which immediately makes me uh, worried. Now, I've seen you said uh, elsewhere that index funds are intellectually uh, dumb. Obviously, we can see the reasoning behind that. Now, Steve and I have a different approach, but occasionally (laughs) when we're looking at other countries, we might look at an ETF. So I think a a couple of years ago, Steve said to me, well, look at Pakistan. The PE is like <coughs> seven. The dividend yields near enough 10%. Uh, but I'm a busy guy. I've got two toddlers. I don't necessarily have the time or expertise to be analyzing banks in Pakistan. And you could say the same about Turkey or Russia. Now, Steve is more switched on and probably more attuned to picking the best companies and the companies in the cheap sector and so on. But would you ever buy a cross-section of a market? I think Buffett might have done something similar in Japan a year or two back. Um, or would you always look for the companies? Tell us a bit about what you actually think about the index fund approach. I, I think there's definitely a place for index funds, you know, as Buffett himself says. Uh, it's the path of least resistance for lots of people. Um, and the record shows that, you know, it, it has worked in, in recent times. I guess my worry is if, if ever there's a, a change of paradigm and money inflows turn into money outflows, well, you, you know, you're on a di- downward spiral uh, in an index fund then. But in the big developed markets where there's huge pools of liquidity and, uh, and so forth, you know, I, I guess an index fund strategy does make some sense. They're well run, the fees are low. Um, and if you have a long-term horizon, as we've seen, you can ride out these crazy ups and downs, you know, just kind of set and forget. If you take an extreme view, you know, some of my uh, more right-wing mates might, um, they do worry about, you know, hyperinflation even in developed market currencies, given the, the level of uh, printing and, and money creation that's been going on at the central banks. So you might find that you own an S&P index fund that's, you know, gone up a thousand percent, but then if the US dollar loses, you know, fifty percent of its purchasing power, uh, you know, what have you really got? That that's kind of the the one, uh, I guess, black swan risk uh, that I do keep in the back of my mind with with index funds. Would I ever buy one? I haven't, uh, but there are a couple that apply to to Africa. Uh, there's one for Nigeria. 
which is a basket of, I think, about 30 uh, of the, the biggest Nigerian companies. Trades on the New York Stock Exchange. It trades at a huge discount at the moment to the NAV, uh, and that's because there is this parallel exchange rate and it's already discounting uh, a devaluation. So essentially, investors have built in a 30% odd devaluation. That's one I've thought about because it's an easy way of getting some exposure to Nigeria. Nigeria is a market that I've mostly avoided at the moment because of this currency issue. But if you can buy it already X devaluation, then, yeah, there's an argument uh, certainly for that. However, the liquidity in these markets, and, and you raised that earlier, that was the other risk uh, that, that we didn't get around to discussing. Liquidity is, is really quite bad. Now, liquidity, you need that if you're going to be trading an index fund basket, you know, and I think most of these markets are just simply not mature enough or liquid enough or deep enough to, to support that. South Africa is a different story and Nigeria is the other one that, that has uh, index funds. Kenya, maybe, arguably, uh, you know, it could be done there. So at this stage, it's not really much of a, a question because there's just no solutions available. The, the one thing I will say, uh, there, there is a South African, uh, Pan-African uh, index fund as well that includes South Africa. Uh, but as it turns out, um, the largest capitalization company in South Africa uh, is a company called NASPERS that you might be familiar with. And their biggest asset, even though they spun out a lot of it now in, uh, in a Dutch uh, holding company listing, is actually their uh, venture capital stake that they took in WeChat. So you buy this African index fund and essentially... And you buy a Chinese telco. It's a Chinese tech fund, you know, the, the biggest weighting. So you, you've got to, that's the other thing I would say about index funds, you know, understand what it is you're buying, you know, for goodness sake, uh, don't, don't just sort of look at the name of it, actually look at the ingredients. Yeah, the uh, holdings. Like, like you stuff. go shopping for groceries, you know, make sure there's nothing in there that, that, that's a nasty surprise. That, that's the other thing I would say. But, you know, the, the intellectual underpinnings of index fund investing, I, I guess they're quite sound. And, you know, John Bogle, you know, it was a brilliant innovation that he came up with. But, I mean, he himself said if everyone's doing it, then it doesn't work because mm -hmm. there's no one actually There's no arbitrage. There's no arbitrage. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, corporate governance goes out the window. You know, these guys don't vote at AGMs. You know, managements can, can run riot. And at the end of the day, it's it's really... It's the purest form of momentum investing that there is. Now, momentum investing works until it doesn't, right? But it's just ludicrous to me that um, the stuff that's gone up in value the most and gained the most in market cap then automatically attract most of the new investment capital. Yeah. And I, I, just, I, I struggle to, um, to deal with that as a value investor. That, that's, I guess, the answer. <laughs> How, Tim, how do people invest in your fund? How do they go about that? They jump on the website, um, blah, blah, blah? Or? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's not a hedge fund. It doesn't go long and short, but it, it kind of inhabits that space that a lot of hedge funds do in that it's uh, incorporated offshore. And the reason for that is you know, not because it's doing anything dodgy. It's just that we have investors from all over the world. The best tax-neutral structures are incorporated in offshore jurisdictions so that basically all of the income 
uh, and gains pass through to the individual and the individual pays whatever tax they owe in their own tax jurisdiction. So it's, it's the most efficient way of setting up a fund that has investors from, you know, 30 different countries around the world, yeah. essentially. So we're incorporated in the British Virgin Islands, which is an interesting jurisdiction. It's a bit more flexible than uh, the Cayman Islands, which is the, the biggest uh, offshore uh, fund incorporation jurisdiction. And we set it up as uh, what's called a BVI private fund, uh, which meant that we could set a, a more attractive minimum investment. Uh, you know, the, the typical BVI fund requires a minimum investment of $100,000 and is only available to accredited uh, or sophisticated investors. Not our fund. Our fund can take any investor and the minimum is $25,000 US dollars. Uh, we're not allowed to officially market it or advertise it. So I do a lot of PR for it like this, uh, right. but people need people need to find it on their own. You know, there is a website. It's not rocket science. And then right. because of the way the, juristic, uh, the laws there work as a private fund, we've got to make you a private offer. So that means you've got to put your details in the website, create an account, and then, you know, you're on the website in your own little private right. world. Right. You can okay. download the documents and, you know, it's, it's all handled by an administrator that's based in Singapore. Um, it's all set up with everything separated and segregated and, and post made off, you know, I, I think every fund does that um, and that's that's how it uh, it functions. So, it, it, I mean, it sounds like you're obviously, you're going to be there for the long term by the sounds of it. I mean, it's yeah. a bit like home in the, for you, in a, you know, like your birthplace. It's, it's, it's quite interesting in that sense, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, my, my, my wife ribs me about that. She, she says, oh, you, you feel really comfortable here, don't you? It's, <laughs> like, it's like your, uh, your kampong, as they say in, in Indonesian, you know, your village. Right. And I said, yeah, I um, but, yeah, I like being here in Dar es Salaam by the ocean and, uh, you know, the, the tropical weather. It suits me. It doesn't suit everyone. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel comfortable here. Uh, and I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I've got two young daughters and essentially I I view this as a project uh, that I will continue with until, you know, they've both finished school and gone off to uni. So, you know, we're talking right. um, 20 Long years. Long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, we might relocate somewhere else, but I think this region is the place for us to be. Um, yeah. there's, there's other places that we could go as well in, in the longer term, but uh, one day at a time at the moment with COVID and we're quite comfortable here. Yeah, yeah. Tim, one of the things I like there is that you're not uh, too far removed from the investors in the fund. It seems to me these days in some of the larger funds that the fund manager in adverted commerce almost becomes a, a marketing mouthpiece and they don't seem to spend any time analysing the actual stock. Maybe they did when they started out, but it seems to me you're much closer to the investors in the fund uh, because it's a more boutique and uh, you don't have tens of thousands of investors to, to manage. Um, I've got a slightly different question though, and it's less about the investing process and a more personal question. I've read that you yeah. like to try and apply your value uh, methodology or mindset outside of the stock market. So in terms of getting the best price for you know, travel or restaurants or whatever else it is you're doing. So that was my first question. Do you have any examples you can sort of give to us about that? The other mm -hmm. thing is I, I remember reading or hearing once, maybe it was 
uh, Jim Rohn back in the 1980s saying that about this concept that time is more important than money because he, he can always get more money, but you can't get more time. And yeah. obviously we've, we've got yeah. this kind of finite allocation, which a lot of people these days squander on, well, my kid's on the iPad by the looks of it from what I can see in the corner of my eye. Other people that, use their time <laughs> wisely. So do you have any sort of advice for us on that front simply because you're somebody who's actually been out there and seen the world so i figured you might have some useful insights for us yeah you know on on the getting value for money i guess um i i'm not a cheapskate like i i like the, the finer things in life um i like you know flying business class when i can and staying in nice hotels and eating at nice restaurants and, and all the rest of it but i hate paying the sticker price so i'm always looking for the best value for my money now, you know, the best value for your money might be getting uh, a half price deal on a, a business class fare uh, that might still cost you, you know, twice as much as an economy fare, but you're getting much better service. Value. I, I feel that I'm, you know, it, it just psychologically, um, I, I have a good feeling when I, I get a good deal like that. So I guess, you know, a couple of, uh, the, the basic things that I learned over the years uh, in terms of travel, if it ever comes back to what it was, let's hope it does, was that, you know, you can often get a much better deal by flying not directly from hub to hub, but starting your journey, uh, you know, in, in more of a, a backwater and then going through the hub and then going on to your destination. So, for example, I lived in uh, Manila for many years and I would go to the US for business trips and, and board meetings and things like that. And you get a Cathay Pacific ticket in Manila via Hong Kong to New York, and it'll cost you much less than the same ticket from Hong Kong to New York. So you're adding a leg and you're getting it for 30% less oftentimes. So that, that was a, a basic revelation uh, that I had in terms of, of travel. Um, the other sort of one that has now also become more common, you know, I see people doing websites uh, based on this is people that buy in frequent flyer points and then use those to issue tickets uh, to clients and then charge a cash price. So they can obviously discount those. Now, it's a grey area. Some airlines, you know, they don't allow it. Uh, how you get the points is important. So I used to use this travel agent in New York, um, who the way he would get the points was through American Express corporate cards. It's all kosher. Ironically, he's actually uh, an Orthodox Jew, so I use the word kosher there. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, so they would basically issue uh, a ticket, you know, having converted these American Express rewards points into frequent flyer miles on, you know, all the different alliances, One World, Star Alliance, uh, Sky Team, whatever, uh, and then depending on, on the demand on the route and, and, and so on, they, they just quote you a cash price and, and you buy it. And, uh, you know, it all worked pretty seamlessly. Uh, I ever only ever had uh, an issue once where I was denied boarding uh, in Jakarta. I was travelling to, to Paris um, or to France for, for my mum's 60th birthday, I think it was actually. And they said, oh, no, you know, this ticket was issued by American Airlines in Dallas and, you know, this is suspect and, you know, we think that there's a security risk and we're not going to let you on the plane. I said, okay, whatever. Um, so I contacted the guy and said, look, uh, I've got this issue. 
I ended up booking a, a ticket on Qatar Airways and uh, I made the trip anyway and there was no major inconvenience. He refunded me my money and even gave me a discount on the next ticket and, you know, it was all um, all quite good. So uh, I don't necessarily want to mention his name in, in a public forum, uh, <laughs> but uh, those kinds of guys exist. Uh, there's some websites uh, done in Australia now too. Like I think there's one called I Fly Flat. Um, is it? Uh, Aussie guy that that does that, but those those kinds of things. And I mean, you can do it yourself. You know, accumulate if you if you know how uh, rewards points work as a currency, and you keep an eye on the deals, you can often uh, end up getting quite a good bank of um, of points available. Now, I know they're difficult to use, and COVID's probably changed the whole <laughs> landscape entirely because everyone hasn't been able to travel and they've all got all these points that they want to use. That's probably even harder than before. Uh, but certain routes that aren't popular, you know, you can always get a seat and then, you know, you, you can make your plans onwards from there. That's one thing uh, that I've historically done. Different people are, different, uh, are driven by different things. And, you know, obviously I've worked with, with money and investing and, you know, some people probably view me as a, a greedy so-and-so and all I care about is money and so on and so forth. And that couldn't be further from the truth. What I'm driven by is, is freedom uh, and money can buy you freedom is the way I view it. It can buy you the freedom from having to spend your time working for someone else. Once you've got enough passive income to cover your basic expenses and, and whatever you know luxuries you want, then, as you say, your, your time is free to spend um, how you like. Uh, now, I'm lucky that I enjoy spending my time investing and researching and so on, which happens to then, you know, if I do it right, cause even more money to roll in the door. Uh, but it's not the money that drives me. It's the process and it's the freedom and it's doing my own thing and not having a boss and, you know, that, that's the key. Um, and time is, is the only thing that, um, you know, everyone is given an equal allocation of when they're born and they can choose to use it in different ways. And unfortunately, most people do tend to squander a lot of time, uh, so it would appear. But if you think of the world in those terms, I mean, what are you investing for? You know, are you investing so you can go and buy a, a bigger mansion on the harbour or, you know, are you investing Are you investing because you just want to be able to tell your boss to go jump in a lake and resign? Uh, you know, you've got to work out what it is you want. Uh, you know, it's, it's not only about accumulating more and more money. As Buffett says, money is just a way of keeping score. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, time, time is the most valuable asset that anyone has. What would be the one investment book that, if you know, like if they said, Tim, it's an island, Robinson Crusoe, what what would be the one that you'd take? Probably the, the one that had the most uh, impact on me was Lowenstein's uh, Buffett book, The, the Making uh, of an American, American Capitalist. Capitalist, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, because, you know, it's a good read and it's, it's um, you know, it's a storytelling kind of a yeah. book, a, a biography. But if you if you read between the lines and take um, you know the the teachings from all of the anecdotes, then that that's definitely the one. I mean, it's hard to narrow it down to just one, but that that's yeah, the yeah, one. absolutely, yeah, entertaining, oh, informative, um, yeah. useful, all of the above. Yeah, living in Sydney for a dozen years, I came across a lot of um, 
South Africans and you know, South Africa seems to have its own challenges with its trajectory and yep. I guess to some degree it's a more developed um, market so maybe the valuations are slightly different but I'm just going to rewind the clock to the Asian crisis in the late 90s and stock prices they're rock bottom nobody wanted to invest today from what I can gather in a country like where you are today Tanzania it seems that profits have been rising but stock prices are still cheap so um, do you exactly. see the potential for those big sort of five or 10x returns because uh, I guess in Australia we talk a lot about the chindia boom and you know China's this and India's going to do that but I guess by you know if we're having this conversation in 20 years time there'll be more working age people in Africa than in China and India combined and it's those people that are going to drive the economic growth with their output their consumer spending you mentioned that Africa needs the capital and investment. And I'm thinking, presumably, it's going to go to where the labour is. You mentioned some of that institutional money has come out of frontier markets, I assume, because of the disruptions that we've been having. But if we're having this conversation in 20 years' time, do you think capital will have come back and the institutions will have been investing and they'll all be piling back in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, and it, it also has to do with liquidity, from what I've seen in, uh, you know, the 26-odd years that I've been doing this, uh, it all moves in cycles and, and the, the cycles can be long or they can be short. But at the moment, what drove African equity markets much higher back in, you know, the late noughties and, and early 2010s, it was foreign, foreign money inflow. You know, there was a, a time where frontier funds kind of became marketable and a lot of US and European capital was attracted to the sector. And I mean, it's a bit nonsensical in a way to just label something a frontier fund and, and have investments everywhere from, you know, Pakistan to Nigeria. It, to me, it, it's, a, it's, but it's a marketing concept. And there was a, a rush of capital that went into these uh, these funds and allocators, you know, they they had to have a frontier fund on their menu, and that was the source of a lot of the rise in Af African equity markets, uh, you know, ten years ago or 15, 15 years ago, I guess it started, and then it it ran its course. You know, they they put all this money in, and then all of a sudden, fashion changed. You know, index fund investing in the developed markets became the the, the go-to thing for everyone or, or, you know, Bitcoin came along or who knows what it was, but the money then flowed out again. And because of the, the you know, lack of liquidity, prices have come right down. There was a fundamental aspect too, you know, the, the commodity cycle had, had peaked and a lot of African uh, liquidity is driven by uh, commodity export earnings. So when commodities are doing well, a lot of money flows into these economies and finds its way into the stock market in some places. But the companies themselves, and I, I saw this when I came to Tanzania um, in, in late 2018 and again in early 2019 on these investment research trips that I did for my own personal investing before uh, I, I got in, involved with the fund, um, you know, I, I could see that the worst was over in terms of the business cycle and, and the banks in particular and cement company that I have a big stake in, uh, you know, they were doing well. But as you say, the share prices were basically, you know, rock bottom, no buyers, people still trying to get out. 
and they're selling for non-fundamental reasons, uh, and and that's been what we've been able to take advantage of um, with, with the fund. We've, we've taken some of that stock off their hands, basically. So they, you know, they had redemptions, and funds are shutting down, and it's the age-old problem with the open-ended funds. Really, is is you're at the mercy of the uh, investors coming and going. Uh, so for the future, I think that eventually, you know, the fashion will change again. If even a, a tiny fraction of the money that's floating around in the developed markets gets allocated back to these frontier markets, it's going to move the needle. But to your other point, you know, these markets are going to develop uh, locally. You know, there are going to be more workers saving for retirement. So you're going to get that tailwind as well, hopefully, that the local money, local pension funds, local individuals, they're going to discover the stock market and start putting money to work. And there's going to be a structural uh, tailwind there as well. At least that's what I tell myself. Uh, time will tell whether I'm uh, right or wrong. But in the meantime, you know, even, even just dividends, um, you know, I say to people, obviously, part of the, the mandate of the fund is to buy stocks where I think the multiples can double or do even better. And that, that only happens through more capital coming in and re-ratings. But even just without that, you know, say, say the multiples stay the same. If you've got a bank that's generating, uh, you know, a 20% return on equity and you buy it at under book, and it's retaining two-thirds of those earnings and compounding them, when you're earning a double-digit dividend yield in your second year and it's going to keep compounding from there, you know. So it's big numbers. That's the beauty of compounding, and and people don't really grasp that. Uh, You know, here in uh, the local market in Tanzania, everyone's wild about government bonds because, as we briefly touched on earlier, you know, you can get 15% on a government bond and inflation's 3 or 4%. So it's a, it's a good, you know, real return. Mm. It doesn't compound, you know, and, and when that bond pays you out in 15 years' time, the currency will have fallen in value. So I'd much rather buy the banks, which own a big portfolio of government bonds, but they fund themselves with cheap deposits. So, they're, they're, in effect, they're like a leveraged play on the government yeah. bond market and they retain their earnings and they compound, you know, so... That, that's how I view it. I'm, I'm very much an equities guy. I, I'm not a fixed income guy, although there is definitely a case for looking at fixed income in these markets as well because the real rates of return are, are really quite attractive, which, as you say, I mean, we've forgotten about uh, in, in the West. I mean, interest, what's that? You know, it, it no longer exists. So um, thank you uh, so much for today, Tim, for your insights on uh, hunting value, both in investing and in life and interesting insights there into why you invest in the first place for freedom uh, for money freedom yes but also for, for time it's yeah. one of the things that Stephen talks about a lot is understanding your personality type because that can actually give you insights into why you're doing all this stuff in the first place now you mentioned that you can't uh, market your fund in Africa but of course what we can do is put a link to your bio and it's not too difficult for people to track down your Global Value yeah. Hunter website yeah. as well. So there's, uh, yeah, there's the two websites, Global Value Hunter and African Alliance Fund, basically, are the, the ones that I run. And I'm the only guy in the world with my name. So if you if you Google that, you're going to find Probably it. strike it. <laughs> Cheers, yeah. Tim. I enjoyed that. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.